Welcome to Blacklist of the Marks. My name's Nick. My name's Spencer. Spencer. Yes, Nick. I am very loosely acquainted with what we're talking about today. Oh, and... I am very deeply acquainted with what we're talking about today. Not so much in what I'm about to say, but the topic in general. Well, well, in the spirit of Blacklisted, we have pretty much not prepared. Uh, or I should say I haven't. I think it sounds like you, you are pretty familiar with it. But go ahead and, and lay out for us what is the topic Sure. So I'm going to give some backstory to the topic as right. well today. So Nick and I did what Talk we normally do is Spencer texts Nick, hey, Nick, should we do a podcast on Sunday? And Nick's like, sure. And I'm like, two. And he's like, sounds good to me. And then we don't talk until the day before. Yeah. <laughs> then the Nick's like, podcast topic. And I said, I just turned my phone on to text you about that. And Nick, in his witty retort, goes, perhaps telepathy, which we thought about, but then aren't going to do. Because if we're going to do that episode, we're just going to telepathically project it to you. Mm -hmm. So if there's a, a tinkling noise in your head, that's us with the next podcast. So just yeah. watch out for that, that noise. So I then message back, I've been dealing with a lot of people shit this week. And I've been thinking about how do I know when I'm wrong? Because there's a lot of, am I the wrong? Are they wrong? Are we both wrong? How do we know when somebody's wrong? And then the other podcast is, what do we do about it? Mm -hmm. uh, but in this particular podcast, we're focusing on the idea of being wrong. And A, how do we know that we're wrong? Okay. And B, what do we do with it once we know we're wrong? So... I thought you said that the second podcast was what do we do about it? I think that when, within this con by that comment, I meant like, what do we do about it when other people are involved Got in the it. situation? And this may not be going all the way to an external expression of saying something out loud. Maybe this is the internal reconciliation. I think part two is what happens once it flows through your fingers into a screen or comes out of your mouth. Okay. All right. So uh, give us a few anecdotes here describing, uh, you know, what was the inspiration for this topic? So uh, there have been lots of things, many of which I can't go into specific detail on, okay. but I think one common trend that I find all throughout my life is that he said, she said conversation, which is before we start any relation to persons living or dead is hereby coincidental and is not intended. <laughs> oh, Spencer Field or Nick Stumpfiles or any opinions expressed by Nick Stumpfiles and Spencer Field does not reflect Blacklisted Marks LLC, which does not exist. <laughs> it, except that my accusations, I would like to be on the record. And I, if you are hearing this, I do want you to feel hurt. So uh, <laughs> with, with that caveats, the double down on, uh, I think one that, so the common thing is the he said, she said conversation, mm -hmm. which is when I'm working with somebody and they, I said, where's this thing? And they said, you never told me to get that thing. I said, I very definitely told you to get that thing. And they said, I've never heard about that thing. You never told me to get that thing. And sometimes it's really easy to pull up Slack or Airtable or Trello or emails and say like, no, actually, I definitely did. <laughs> and then that, that's one kind of end to the conversation. But very rarely in life do the big questions have an answer on Slack. And if you have a Slack channel out there which does have the answer to life's big questions, please, <laughs> please invite me. You can find me at spencerfield.me. Um, like, let, let's, let's get, get together on this. But for the times where we don't have simple answers, uh, where when there was it communicated digitally and there's really like we can't rewind time there's no documentation about it how is it that i know if i'm wrong in that situation i think that's the easy anecdotal example but then it becomes a lot more difficult so i was out to lunch with the family today 
And I come from a very both religiously conservative as well as politically conservative. So before that, we were helping my mother, she's a therapist, move offices. So all the field boys got together to move furniture around, as field boys do. And the, my father and brother started down this conversation of how the federal government's on the cusp of banning pistols and how it's government overreach and how pistols are a vital part of American society and how... Yeah, yeah, you're, you're <laughs> perpetuating and all sorts of so I do what I thought was very wise. I go to the kitchen, get a bottle of LaCroix, and go sit in my mother's new office and help her hang pictures on the wall. Like like a good non-engagement would do. And that was a question like there is no right answer. Like, is the federal government trying to ban pistols or not? I mean, I'm sure there's somebody there is. I'm sure there's a bunch of people saying it's not, but like that's a bigger question. And then you get to like the really big questions, like, is there a meaning to life? Or if not, what do you do about it? Or like see podcast for it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's see all podcasts and see Pretty that much. we don't know the answer to any of those questions. And so you get to those big questions or like there is no God making an affirmative statement like that. How is it that I have come to that conclusion and what needs to happen to show that I'm wrong? So Nick, when you're engaging with the world around mm -hmm. you in any of those maybe three levels mm -hmm. of wrongness or questioning, what are some ways you know that you're wrong? Mm. Okay, this is a very good, very good topic. I'm, and I'm glad you brought it up. I think I know it in a few ways. One is just evidence. Um, but Chris Hitchens would refer often to uh, what I think it was Aristotle would say, which is the, the daemon, the inner daemon, not demon, but daemon, which is, uh, you know, a Greek term, essentially your conscience, where, uh, for example, I'm, I'm training my mom and my dad in the gym now. So I'm, I'm doing some, some personal training and uh, first two clients are mom and dad. And I have to be um, very uh, aware and cognizant of their different, different physical requirements in order to, to get them an effective workout. Mm -hmm. And something that they both reported was when I was lifting with them, they would get very dizzy uh, or woozy. And I told my mom, you don't have enough salt. You need more, more sodium so that you don't feel. Oh like boy. Oh boy. Before, uh, before you, you, uh, go lift. And so I said, take a teaspoon of salt before you come lift with me. Um, and in my brain, I thought teaspoon is okay. Yeah. That's the, that's the right measurement. And I hear her uh, having an aneurysm in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm sure. Because she's grown up with the American, you know, whatever society telling her salt will kill you and your children. Well, no, 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 no. So she's very much uh, a hunky nutritionist who thinks saturated fat and salt is very much okay for you, which I'm of the same mind. But a teaspoon is a fuck ton of salt. And uh, I was under the impression in my mind that it was the, like, just tip of a spoon. Oh, uh, now I'm aware what a teaspoon is. Right. But just when I when I prescribed that, I just yeah. meant like get some salt. Right. And, but I was very uh, arrogant about it. I was like, you know, what's the matter with you? Come on, just just drink it down. I do this multiple times per day because I didn't see how much she took, and she's having such a difficult time trying to drink this down. And then we're driving to the gym. She's like, Nick, I feel nauseous. I don't feel good. I think I'm gonna throw up. Come to find out when we get home, she actually took a literal teaspoon of salt, which is somewhere on the order of like 15 grams of sodium. Sure. Which is, you know, just triple what the RDA is. Um, not that it's going to hurt her, but I was I was dead wrong. And I kind of felt in my chest that like, ooh, yeah, I, I knew it. Like that mini ego death. Mm -hmm. And I kind of felt it early on too, but then it got more pointed when she was like, Nick, this is how much I took. 
And I said, oh, that is very much not what I meant, <laughs> though I was wrong. Sure. So you have that experiential just gut feeling like, shit, okay, yeah, that's, you know, my bad. Um, and then I think you have the, there have been times where I'm just totally blindsided, mm -hmm. where somebody just lays out the case, you did X, and X was incorrect, or it hurt me, or whatever, and all of a sudden, my brain goes into overdrive trying to reconstruct my intentions and actions mm -hmm. and reasonings and whatnot to find, you know, culpability wherever that might be. Uh, but I think I'm not necessarily sure where else to go with this, except I just want to put this out there. I'm very much interested in this because I'm embarking on uh, my next film, which is to try and prove myself wrong about atheism mm -hmm. uh, and achieve a belief in, in some form of a God again, not necessarily in a religion. And it would be very helpful to know when am I wrong? Either am I wrong about atheism or if I do, you know, subscribe to X number of beliefs about religion, like how did I know I was wrong about being Catholic? Mm -hmm. So uh, I definitely want to see where this goes. Yeah, I may have snuck it in there uh, slightly intentionally. Ah. Because our conversation before this was about the new movie. Oh, great! Uh, so there may have been there may have been ulterior motives. Uh, <laughs> maybe I don't know. Uh, Associate <laughs> producer Spencer Field. <laughs> so I think this question I, I'll I'll agree with you that there may not be a simple answer to it. That there are occasions where there's simple answers like here's the evidence you're wrong, just you're wrong. But I think when we deal with cases in reality that often matter mm -hmm. it's not as simple as just looking at evidence or if there is evidence on the table there's multiple pieces of conflicting evidence mm -hmm. on the table and then not only is there evidence on the table you have to interpret that evidence <laughs> and then weigh the value of each argument and there's not a way to really do that in a universal standpoint. It's kind of like pain. Mm -hmm. There's not a way to measure pain equally among humans. I also don't know that there's a way to, to standardize the value of evidence among humans. Yeah. Because there's definitely been times where I've had conversations with people. I was having a conversation with a friend for three and a half hours over beers the other day. And we were having this conversation regarding whether or not abortion was a good thing or a bad thing. And we were looking at the same evidence and just coming to radically mm -hmm. different conclusions. Yeah. And so then it was my job to break down how is it that I'm seeing this evidence? How is it that he's seeing this evidence? Where do we differ and how do I convince him that I'm right? Because I'm obviously right. Like there's no way that I'm wrong. But absolutely not. Mm -hmm. And his job should be the same is to see how I've interpret the data differently and how I come to conclusions and then convince me that he's right because obviously he couldn't be wrong. And I think part, and I think that is the, the crux of this matter is that not only do we have individual data points, but we have multiple data points. Mm -hmm. And the biggest question I think is how is it that we determine what data gets our weight? Like where, yeah. how are we going to weigh the data? Because there's no even scales. We make the scales every time. So two thoughts on that. First, our first podcast was abortion, mm -hmm. uh, episode one. And I think in light of the recent legislation, it could be interesting, maybe not in this podcast, but to just bring it up again in the future to see, because I think my opinion has honestly changed since our first podcast. I'll have to go back and brush up and see, you know, what did I say? Um, but I think that'd be interesting for us to kind of go back and, and reassess that. Sure. In a yeah. Podcast. I don't know that my opinions change much, but I do have some friends which have 
put forward some, maybe that's a, a group podcast. I wonder what it would look like that, to have that guests could be cool. on. Yeah. Okay. For sure. Spencer makes note. Great. And then the second thing that I think is, is vitally important as well, because you bring up a great point about sort of the epistemology of this, which is, okay, how do we know? And then how do we value what we know yep. in order to create some form of actionable knowledge here? But then the other very important thing is after you've done that arithmetic, does the answer matter? So there have been plenty of times where I'm sure you know people have had this experience themselves or have watched this in others, where somebody knows they are wrong or doesn't know they are wrong, in both cases, does not care. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes this comes up with the question of, of religious faith, um, where whether or not somebody is factually correct or incorrect about whatever belief they might have, that is not what, what is going into their mental arithmetic. It's how does this make me feel? How does this make me operate as a human? Uh, you know, does it give me hope? Do I get up out of bed every day with, with joy in my heart? Uh, does it help me love people more? And all of those things I think are equally uh, added into this mm -hmm. calculus whether or not they should or shouldn't be is a, is a different question, but they definitely are. Um, even I remember talking to my therapist about this, even the question of honesty. Mm -hmm. So I have a uh, just voice in my head that constantly tells me that I'm a dishonest person. And I was talking to, uh, you know, my psychiatrist. <laughs> it's <laughs> a new field where they use telepathy. <laughs> and my speech coach <laughs> about this. And... He, he struck on something or he presented something that I found to be remarkable, which was the difference between honesty and truthfulness, uh, which truthfulness might be speaking or identifying a true fact about the nature of reality. And honesty is more of an internal experience of, are you in alignment with yourself? And so for example, if, if mom asks, did you do X and you answer using equivocation, uh, the truth might have been bent or avoided or subverted in some way, but you might think in your heart, this isn't worth talking about right now, you know, or she doesn't need to know, or this answer might trouble her. And so to yourself, you're being honest, but objectively you're not being truthful. And, you know, that may not have been the perfect example for it, but even the nuance within that just totally muddies the water when you, when you bring up these questions, like, are you right or wrong? Well, shit. What does that even mean, I guess? Right, yeah. It's because sometimes there's simple things like a standard, like is the trash out of the bin into the garbage can outside right. or isn't it? Like there are yeah. there are objective truths around it. But I would venture to guess that often like the question of global warming, which Nick and I disagree on. That's another <laughs> podcast for another time. Is, is, is people in, in my camp look at the evidence and they say like, how can you not see this? Like it... It's crystal clear. The data shows it. Now we can argue about causation, but whether or not the polarized caps are shrinking is like not in question. They're smaller. But people on the other side of the table, which I room related to some, look at the you know, different data or the same data, or they walk outside and say, it's cold out here. You know, obviously global warming isn't a thing. So and, I'm going to stop you before okay. your entire army is made of straw. <laughs> and... <laughs> So obviously within my comments, there's humor built around right, them. Right. But I think that that illustrates the idea yes. that when we're having conversations regarding things which 
I think at least deeply matter. There's a difference of opinion on what data we look at. And it's no longer a, a true or false statement. It's a tree of 10,000 true or false statements. Yeah. And all of them have to be weighed differently. And I think even in that simple, like, is this worth bringing up? You know, how will this affect the person? Yeah. How will this affect our, you know, our relationship? How does this affect my standing so, you know, from a social perspective? I, that's a question in and of itself. And I think that's an important part of this conversation, which we really haven't talked about, is how do our egos... And how does our pride get engaged in these conversations? Yes. Because I know that there are times where I'll pick a point and I will die on that mountain mm-hmm. because I think that point is really important to move to. And I will admit that there are times in my life that as I have been revealed, like we've had a conversation, we've moved into it, we've discussed it maybe even over the course of months, that I've learned that this issue isn't the mountain I need to die on. But because I've always lost two <laughs> arms, a leg and a nose, like I'm not leaving this mountain. And good old economics would say like opportunity costs, Spencer, yeah. you might as well leave before you lose that one other arm. So you can do a one handed arm stand off the top of this mountain. Uh, but there are been times where I've just doubled down and it's because of, I thought there would be ramifications on my social standing or people wouldn't mm-hmm. see me as the smart guy anymore. Yeah. And I think that that's, another maybe even as important issue to how is it that we weigh the facts bringing in the human element is about how is it that that process those systems either edit the ways we value the facts and or just impede us from valuing the facts in general no absolutely fantastic fantastic point to bring up and it's i think at the crux of at least part of this discussion and I knew I was ready to make the prodigal when I spent enough time looking inward and I realized that that ego was small enough that I was aware of it and could uh, at least wrangle it, marshal it. Where if if I did have the, you know the evidence or the argument or whatever it might be at the end of this year that convinced me, I could leave the mountain. I could say, I am, I do believe that there is something. So I want to push back on this a little bit. Okay. Because part, so there's, I think there's two stages, probably way more, but I'll start with two stages. So I think the first one is knowing that ego in a human exists, mm-hmm. knowing that it exists within me and recognizing mm-hmm. that it's there. And I think like first stage completed, checked off, well done. Yeah. You get that certificate to hang on your wall. Uh, and some people are more or less aware of that ego. Some people have a better or worse relationship with that ego. Sometimes in different areas of their life, that ego is more or, or less active. Uh, so I think stage one, and there's probably sub-stages and whatnot going on there. We won't, we won't dive into that. I think stage two then is a stage which is an inescapable part of human existence, and that is this. When we have an ego that ego jades the way we see the evidence around us. And we can't counterbalance that ego in a fair way because counterbalancing requires an understanding of how much it affects us, where it's affecting us from. And there isn't a way to to Mm -hmm. note that, which is in my argument of why I became a non-Christian, meaning I won't commit to anything else at this point, but uh, why I no longer would call myself a Christian, that element was a, a major decision voice for me, which is I know I'm biased in one direction and I can't counterbalance my bias in a reasonable way. So as you're engaging with this product or, or this project, 
maybe not even just this project, but in the rest of your life, because you live a life outside of projects as well. How is it that you can come to quantify the effects mm -hmm. of ego on yourself, trying to have the whole idea that it's the ego viewing itself, which then hides bits from you and reveals other bits from you and misleads you. And as there's no privileged perspective about how our egos affect us, other than maybe those around us, um, trying to, to counterbalance the unknowable. So I believe it's because, so the, the, the point you brought up for the listeners, you may have not heard this term before, but I'm sure many have is cognitive bias. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can be aware of cognitive bias and the you quote unquote that is aware is not the thing that is biased mm, i think you're going to fundamentally disagree with that so i guess the distinction that i'm making here is the ego um in the and i'm going to just throw the label of buddhist sense on there um and then the consciousness that is aware of the ego uh, and the difference between those two things so if you have ego disillusionment you know, dissolving the ego, there's something that's left and it might not be a you or a Spencer or a Nick, but there's, there is being there and there is an awareness there. And so for me, the way that I've quantified it so far and, and how I knew I was ready to make the film was I reached a level of mindfulness that I can feel the perturbations of that ego, where if I'm reading an article about God that I, I start to see might be a little bit convincing and I start reading quicker and skimming and taking less of it in because I don't want to be convinced. I am now aware of that and I feel that. And then I can acknowledge it and say, okay, you're being dishonest. And then I start from the top and I detach from that ego that is saying you can't be proven wrong because X, Y, and Z would be undone, right? You would be thought of X, Y, and Z way. And then I'm able to read through the article and say, and, and, and I'm no longer attached to the, to the outcome. I just hold those ideas in my head, swish them around, let them do what they do. And so really it's been, I think I'm just sucking less at mindfulness meditation and, and making that more and more part of my, my day-to-day -day life. And that's to me is, is how I've been able to make progress forward, removing cognitive bias. Okay, I'll give you that that helps remove cognitive bias. I would also disagree, maybe not totally fundamentally, but pretty pretty opposite direction on two of these. So the first one is this almost misnomer of the idea of the ego. So oftentimes in a Western understanding of the ego, it's almost this box. It's just a green box in our head. And it's if we could switch the if we could get rid of the green box if we could get the ego to go away first we'd become enlightened we'd have these like out of body experiences or we'd have these you know mystical revelations or or something along those lines right. that if we could get that ego in our head to go away the identity of I or myself then you know the world would be revealed heaven would open up organ music would play and doves would fall down I I don't think that that is a good understanding of ego. Rather, I think, and I think this is because most of my Buddhist training has been from a Zen perspective, 
Um, as, and so in like Theravada, Zen, and my most of my training is in Sino-Korean subsets. The idea of the ego isn't this external thing in our head. It's not a parasite running around our brains that we can like hold in our hand and say, like I've reduced it. Rather, it's fundamentally attached to everything that we do and everything that we see. It's emotional, it's logical, and it changes our lenses. And so some people have talked about the idea of when viewing the world through our worldview or through our ego, you have you put on a pair of glasses in front of you. And if you could only reach enlightenment, you could remove those glasses and pull them off. I would propose, and I think it's more correct to say that all of us are, are have clear glasses on and ego swooshes around our glasses in inks, blots, and jots, and swirls all of the time. And there's not a way to remove that. You can never take the glasses off. They are always there. And there's ways to maybe reduce them or to see through them more clearly, but they're never not there. And in addition, disagreement point, so that's idea one. Idea two is that when we're making judgments about things, so like you're reading an article, it starts to become convincing. You can be aware of your actions about, I'm skimming now. So you can be cognizant about that. You can be self-aware about that. And I would say it's traditional mindfulness, like kicking in, you're noticing what you're doing more on, on board. And then you go back to the top of the article and you keep reading through it. So I, I think that's a step in the right direction. But here's where I think that the idea, that idea of this podcast about how do I know when I'm wrong gets really complicated. As you're reading that information as an animal, as a human, as a biological machine, as a hormonal person, as somebody who characterizes information in their brain and consumes it in a non-mathematical way, how you interpret that information, how you connect it to other ideas, the way you value that information, there's no way to pull ego out to value that information differently. Like somebody may make a phenomenal point, but your, your quote unquote ego is so deeply entrenched, you're unable to see it. You may read that deeply and you may engage with it very well, but your ego is stopping you from seeing it. It's not like you need to meditate more to see that. Mm -hmm. It's just built into who we are as humans as part of the human condition. And some people see that in other areas. Like for me, even if somebody explains really clearly why they're feeling a certain way, I cannot see that that emotional math, which when I'm just in, in, incapable. That doesn't sound it. to me like a, uh, an ego. So, all right, first question is then in that definition, to, to your first idea and your tradition of Buddhism that you've been trained in, what would their definition of enlightenment be then? So ego in, death. in in Buddhism, you have the Theravada lineage and you have the Mahayama lineage. And one lineage is really interested in the idea of enlightenment, you know, reaching ego death, becoming a bodhisattva, if you will. And that's not the tradition which I've practiced in, nor I think is it the, the more correct tradition, shoot me. Uh, and <laughs> I, I think that, but won't be a Buddhist who shoots me. Uh, <laughs> I'd be thankful about that. But in, in that world, what is the definition of enlightenment is a really important question. Like how is it that we know we have an enlightened one around us? In Mahayama, rather, or, or in the other, forget at this moment the differentiation, which one is which. 
And the other perspective is that it's not about reaching a state of being. It's not about reaching enlightenment per se. Rather, it's much more about the journey and less about the end. So there isn't a focus on becoming enlightened, nor is there a technical definition of enlightenment, nor is there really even a a search for a moment in meditation where all ego subsides and we've had a moment of ego death. That's not particularly the goal, which is being sought after. Rather, it is the process and how the process changes us. But if you are trying to move across a gradient of better to uh, worse to better, how do you know what is better and where you were is worse? And I think that that is left relatively vaguely defined. Right. And that each individual engages in a different way. Uh, and that there are some general principles which are at play, but it's not Catholicism. It's not sure. a Protestant approach, nor is it an Islamic approach or something which has very strict guidelines. It's, it's very weak. But it, as far as the strength of this is bad and this is good, and I think that the like this is good, there's not a solid definition. Like here's the 12 points of a perfect human. Like that, there's, there's not that list somewhere. And there are ideals and there are principles, but it's this huge smorgasbord of stories and examples and individuals which represent the good. It's not an, an individual per se. Okay, but so that sounds... To, I want to drive yeah. this back a little bit well, on track. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, right. I'll let you take the wheel here. I was just going to say, it sounds like that has a set of problems in and of itself. I'm going to leave your first disagreement on the table for a second to your second point which was that um the you know what the ego is doing and how it's not allowing you to value certain things and and how deeply entrenched it is that to me doesn't sound like the product of uh, of ego or the you know the sense of self rather that to me sounds like a product of just neurology of psychology you know it like if x happened to you previously in life you might not value y now today as a result you might be totally and completely blind to it and that could be because you have down syndrome or because you were raped at the age of 5 or because you just don't like the taste of oranges yeah. any one of those things can just exclude information from uh, your appreciation mm-hmm. 